Hi, I'm Joe Feeks, editor of Poultry Health Today, and with me is Dr. Nola Ferguson. She's associate professor at the University of Georgia. Welcome back. Thank you, it's good to be back. Always good to see you. Yes. Um, and, and I know that when we were lining up this interview, I asked about your latest research, <laughs> what you would like to talk about, and yes. the answer I got was, Mycoplasma, mycoplasma, mycoplasma. Exactly, <laughs> mycoplasma all the time. You've made a career out of it. <laughs> I have, it's been very rewarding actually, so it's been good. It's an area that we still need a lot of research, we need to uh, really try to, you know, try to figure out what's going on, so there's a lot of decades left, you know. Hopefully, you know, I'll be okay. <laughs> and I can keep going with mycoplasma as long as I can. It gives you so. job security. Definitely, definitely, so it's good. Now you spent yeah. a lot of time looking at Mycoplasma Galacepticum and Synovia. Well, talk about Synovia today because um, you did a study or presented some work recently about it, what you'd call environmental fomites that the rest of us might describe as dust, feather, litter, things yes. like that. Um, and its relationship to Mycoplasma synoviae. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Sure, so uh, there has been work before about uh, horizontal transmission of both MG and MS, and what we wanted to do was a field study. So it wasn't uh, something that we conducted in the lab. We actually went out to broiler breeder farms that had been naturally infected, and we uh, collected different samples of things that just naturally occur in the poultry house, like litter, dust, feathers, insects, and rodents as well. And uh, we wanted to see how much mycoplasma, MS in particular, was going to be in those particular samples to see their potential to transmit mycoplasma to other farms. So it was pretty interesting going out and collecting all of those samples. Any so. surprises? Well, you know, the mice were interesting. <laughs> Say that, I'll just, I'll just leave it at that. But um, in terms of the testing, it was interesting that litter was a sample that was positive most consistently and had the strongest levels of mycoplasma. So uh, that I was really expecting to see more mycoplasma in the dust and in the feathers. And we did find it in the dust and feathers, but the litter was a sample that seemed to really stand out in terms of the different type. And why do you think that is? I think that uh, the birds are on the litter like all the time. And I think also the conditions of the litter may be conducive to the mycoplasma surviving a little longer. So so uh, moisture, you know, everything else that's going on in the environment of the litter may somehow allow the mycoplasma to survive a little longer than they would in a dry sample like dust or feathers. So, but they did survive in dust and feathers quite a bit as well. So. Are you seeing more mycoplasma synoviae than you did, say, five years ago? Uh, yes, I, say, I think in the last, uh, let's say, three to five years, we've been seeing um, an uptick in the amount of MS that we're seeing. Our MG levels in the U.S. have stayed pretty steady, but MS has always been pretty much of a problem for us in terms of trying to uh, keep the levels very low. And part of that is because MS is slightly different than MG, and we seem to have some strains that transmit very well uh, and persist in the environment a little longer, which is part of the reason that we wanted to do this type of study, to see how long the organism actually can exist in the environment. Because it just seemed to be hanging around for such a long time that we thought that, okay, something is different here. So the MSs seem to persist 
a long time. They tend to be pretty resistant to antibiotics as well. That, that the ones that we are allowed to use right now, they don't seem to respond very well. So uh, we end up with these like ongoing um, outbreaks that just kind of keep going as a low grade level over the last like five years. So it was some pretty interesting results that we got. So getting back to your findings about Synovia being in the litter, what's a producer to do? Yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> but uh, really, even though it survives in the litter, we still don't think that it survives for extended periods of time. So what we really recommend is when you are moving litter out that you have some sort of uh, protocol to treat the litter. Uh, before it is spread on any kind of pastures or anything like that. So heat treatment, uh, any kind of cleaning, letting it lie fallow for a while, uh, composting, all of those things should help to reduce the amount of mycoplasma that is in the litter. So um, any of those things we think we, would be a good thing to do if you have an MS positive farm. Let's shift gears and talk about diagnostics. Uh, because obviously that's critical to managing any disease. You've been taking a close look at what you call molecular diagnostics for mycoplasma. Uh, just for the benefit of our audience, how would you describe molecular diagnostics? How are they different from what we're using now? Right, so, um this molecular diagnosis really anything to do with uh, the DNA of the organism. And uh, what we are doing right now that is really pretty um, common across labs and several different countries is PCR. And that is considered to be a molecular diagnostics. But there are other procedures that are right now mostly in the research labs, but I think that they can move into a diagnostic lab type of situation. We're hoping that we can get them there. So I kind of try to balance uh, research <laughs> diagnostics as well as uh, applied diagnostics for diagnostic labs and hopefully transfer things from the research lab into the regular diagnostic lab. Uh, most of the constraints that we have right now are around cost. So uh, the, I, I don't want to call it value added molecular diagnostics, would be things like ne next generation sequencing. Uh, the cost right now is still a little high and it still is a specialized te technique. It's not something that you can take uh, a technician and train them to do it in a day and then you turn them loose and let them do it. So there is still some work <laughs> that needs to be done. But uh, there are labs in the US, veterinary labs, where they are testing um, routinely using um, next generation sequencing. So we're hoping that we can get it to a point where in terms of cost and turnover, it is something that several different labs are able to do. So. Okay, so it's pretty high level stuff at this point. I mean, it more is. of it, the state labs, the university labs have this technology, yes. uh, but if a veterinarian for a major poultry company wants to run a test like that, what does he or she do? Uh, that's at it's at this point, it's mostly research, uh, and it's very specific, and at different labs, it will be very spotty, just depending on who is working in the lab, whether they are capable of doing this or not. So, uh, aside from cost and expertise, the other stumbling block that I see right now is just uh, what to do with the data. 
So there are lots of researchers working on next generation sequencing, but the problem is that we generate tons and tons of information, and then when you give that to the clinician, they don't know what to do with it. <laughs> so if you uh, isolate E. coli from a case, uh, you say, okay, heavy, pure E. coli, this is your uh, sensitivity and resistance to different antibiotics, the veterinary is able to go off and treat. He says, okay, I have E. coli, and I treat with this antibiotic, and you recover from a metagenomic type of analysis, you get 50 different bacteria. <laughs> or a genus, a genera, and then it's like, okay, so what do I do with this? I don't know. <laughs> Can you tell me what to treat with? Can you tell me what is the actual problem? So we're still at the point where we're trying to come up with what is actionable data for a clinician. So we're generating lots and lots of data, but we're still at the point where we're trying to parse it down to something that actually is something that a clinician can act on. And uh, it's taking a lot of time and effort and research and we're trying to move forward as fast as we can. And there's several different researchers working on this. But uh, right now, I think we're still like three to five years out before we have something that we can say, okay, this is actionable. Well, it sounds like tedious and mind-numbing work, but also very important. <laughs> very important. I would say, yeah, tedious and mind-numbing for the students. You know, <laughs> say that, but yeah. So we get them to do it. But it's still, it. you can get some very exciting results, and it's always good to be uh, on the forefront of what's coming because, you know, we need to keep building, we need to keep improving, we need to keep moving forward. And I think right now this is a way to go, you know, in terms of uh, advanced molecular diagnostics. Well, I'm sure the industry greatly appreciates your efforts. <laughs> I hope so, be <laughs> good. We've been talking to Dr. Nola Ferguson. She's associate professor at the University of Georgia. Nola, great to see you. Great to see you too.